when I was about five years old, I went one Saturday morning with my parents to sign up for YMCA soccer. Some of you might remember the good old days. I don't know, maybe the YMCA still does soccer, but back in the day and the town I grew up in, YMC soccer was like the real thing. It was just like one step below the English Premier League was YMCA soccer. And expecting that signups would be simply filling out paperwork uh, that morning, I wore what I often wore when I was five or six years old, my favorite blue jeans and my favorite cowboy boots. However, when we arrived, we discovered that signups was not simply a time to fill out documentation, but rather that the signups also consisted of an hour-long skills evaluation in the gym. And so there I was. All the other kids in their gym shoes and gym shorts, me in my jeans and beat-up cowboy boots. I may have looked cool, but I looked desperately out of place. You see, tryouts did not turn out to be what we had expected, therefore, we were not prepared. You see, expectation and preparation go together, don't they? Some of you just recently started a college journey, and uh, it's a journey that you've probably been expecting for a long time, and maybe you've made preparations for what college would be like, and you've bought things for your dorm room, and you've You've kind of gotten ready throughout the summer for what you expected college would be like. And for many of you, your experience now a few weeks into the college semester is in harmony with your expectations. It's exactly what you had expected or better than you had expected. But for others of you, what you have now experienced a few weeks into this semester is probably not what you expected. You didn't prepare maybe the way you you thought you needed to. Maybe you prepared in different ways, and so now you're, you're trying to change things up at the last minute. You're trying to adjust your expectations. You're trying to prepare accordingly, and that's normal. Knowing what to expect helps prepare us for what is to come. And this is true of school. It's true of marriage. It's true of parenting. It's true vocationally. It's true of retirement. Knowing what to expect helps prepare us for what's to come. And this is precisely what we find Jesus doing here in Luke chapter 12. Jesus is teaching his followers what to expect about what is to come so that they might prepare accordingly. So if you were listening as Jess read the text this morning, you might have noticed that these verses, verses 49 through 59, are not filled with easy topics. My guess would be this is probably not anybody's wallpaper on their social media account. You know, I've come to cause division, not peace, right? It's probably not something you have vinyl graphics and the wall of your study at home. And these are important topics, though, nonetheless. In fact, these are life and death topics topics. And aren't you glad that in the kindness of God, Jesus is teaching those of us who will listen what we are to expect so that we might be prepared. 
And this is, in fact, what Jesus came to do. So how does Jesus help us to know what to expect, and how does that prepare us for what is to come? Well, first of all, I think it's really clear in these verses, especially 49 through 53, that we should expect Jesus' ministry to bring division. And therefore, we should be prepared to count the cost. And Jesus has been teaching now up until this point about his second coming. As we saw last week, he has warned them and us to be ready for his return by doing what the Lord would want us to do as we wait. So friends, ours is not a passive waiting, ours is an active waiting. And he now turns from what we should expect when he returns to what we should expect here and now. We should expect Jesus' ministry to bring division. Which means, as Christians, as the people of God, we should be prepared to count the cost. And just look at verse 49. The word of the Lord says, from the mouth of Jesus, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother and mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. So Jesus is talking about division. He's talking about doing something that will be shocking. Notice even how he begins here in verses 49 and 15. He, he highlights two sorts of things, fire and baptism. So in the Bible, the image of fire is most often associated or refers to divine judgment. It refers to the intense purification that comes from the Lord. Let me just give you some examples. For example, the prophet Jeremiah's words were said to be a fire that consumed people. We see that in Jeremiah 5.14, Jeremiah 23.29. He warned people, but they wouldn't listen. In fact, the, prof- the prophet Amos warned the people to seek the Lord, lest the Lord break out like fire against you. In Amos chapter 5, verse 6. So fire is a symbol of judgment. At the same time, fire is also used to refer to the purifying work of the Holy Spirit. We see that in Acts 2. We see in Isaiah 4, verse 4, that the Holy Spirit uses fire as a source of cleansing and purification. So when Jesus refers to casting fire on the earth, he's speaking about both divine judgment and intense cleansing. He's fulfilling the promise from John the Baptist in Luke chapter three that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In fact, Hebrews 12, 29 tells us that our God is a consuming fire. God's holiness burns with purity and with power. 
It consumes whatever is destined for destruction because of sin, and at the same time, it purifies whatever God wills to refine. As one author put it, fire always consumes or purifies depending on the nature of what it burns. It is an instrument of judgment revealing things for what they are. And Jesus tells us that this is the reason that he came. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to purify for himself a people for God. He came to undo at the same time those who reject God. So he both refines and he undoes. He brings destructive judgment and purifying salvation. It's that first image of fire. But there's a second image here in the text. You can see it in verse 50, and it's when Jesus refers to baptism. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. So Jesus came not only to cast fire on the earth, but he also came to undergo a baptism. Now, this is obviously not referring to Jesus' water baptism by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. That's already happened. And clearly, here in verse 50, this is something that is yet to take place in Jesus' life. Something that will soon be accomplished. And Jesus is referring to his death, which baptism symbolizes, as we just saw. So Jesus is looking ahead to the cross and to the great dividing work that will happen there at the cross. So for the elect, Jesus' death is our salvation. Jesus' death is eternal life. Jesus' death is our hope of glory. And for those who reject God, Jesus' death is foolishness. It's ridiculousness. Jesus' death is the dividing point for those who will be saved and those who will be lost. For those who are saved, Jesus' death, his baptism of death is where, as one author writes, the waters of God's wrath and judgment sweep over him. Which again is something else we, we symbolize even in water baptism like this morning. Waters of, of judgment, of death, sweeping over us and us rising again to newness of life. This is the baptism that Jesus is referring to. It's a baptism of suffering that he is about to undergo. It's, it's the baptism that Jesus tells James and John, hey, are you really ready to experience the baptism that I am going to experience? You remember when they asked to be seated at his right hand and his left in glory, and Jesus is like, wait a minute. You sure you know what you're asking? Are you going to walk through this suffering with me? And therefore, I think it's clear for us to see, and because of these verses, that Jesus' mission is not to bring all humanity together in unity. In fact, John Lennon didn't get it all right, but he could not have been more wrong when he wrote these words. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below, above us only sky. Imagine all the people, you know the words, live in for today, <laughs> right? Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion 
too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one, and I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. That's John Lennon. But Jesus said, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Now, you may look at verse 51 and think to yourself, and you would be right to do this, wait a minute, I thought Jesus was the Prince of Peace. In fact, at Jesus' birth, didn't the angels sing and declare glory to God in the highest and on earth peace? And you would be right to think that. In fact, Jesus himself said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God in Matthew 5, 9. But what kind of peace are we talking about? Typically, when we think of peace, we think of the absence of turmoil, But in the Bible, peace is the byproduct of right standing with God. Peace comes as fruit of the gospel. So when we believe the gospel, we receive the gospel, we find peace with God, which leads to inner peace as well. In fact, this is how, in fact, Jesus is the Prince of Peace from Isaiah chapter 9. He is the one who, through his death in our place, ushers all who believe back into right standing with God. This is also how the angels' message is accurate when they say that with Jesus' birth and life, there is now peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. So peace comes to those with whom God is pleased, and God is pleased with those who trust in Jesus. But at the very same time, wherever hearers of the gospel are hardened and determined to suppress the truth and love their sin, this message of peace becomes a reason for division. J.C. Ryle wrote, they that are after the flesh will hate those who are after the spirit. They that are resolved to live for the world will always be evil affected towards those who are resolved to live for Christ. We may lament this state of things, but we cannot prevent it. Grace and nature can no more amalgamate than oil and water. So long as men are disagreed upon first principles in religion, there can be no real cordiality between them. So long as some men are converted and some are unconverted, there can be no true lasting peace among them. So if Jesus' words here show us anything, they show us how useless it is, sorry John Lennon, to expect complete human unity even from the preaching of the gospel. It very well could be that Jesus' disciples who are listening to this expected that very soon, if not now, Jesus, in fact, would usher in the fullness of his kingdom. And that would bring immediate peace and unity for all people. In fact, they may have thought that finally, this would be the time when the wolf would lay down with the lamb from Isaiah 11. 
And to them, Jesus' words about division, even among family members, must have been incredibly shocking, just as it is for us. But Jesus, friends, listen, Jesus was adjusting their expectations so that they might be prepared. And if Jesus' first audience needed their expectations adjusted and needed to be prepared, then we do as well today. And we live in a time, don't we, that, that prizes unity and tolerance and inclusion among, well, really above almost everything else. Which means these words of Jesus are incredibly shocking. But there is a sense in which all of the Bible is about making a division among people. Even from the very beginning in Genesis, God has been marking out a people for his own, separating them from those who are in rebellion against him. As one pastor writes, people were either in the ark built by Noah or they were outside of it. People were either circumcised members of Abraham's family or they were cut off from God's people. And even now, people are either members of God's household or are foreigners and strangers. And this is a hard teaching. Because many would prefer to think that in the end, God will ultimately save everyone. That if we don't have peace, if we don't have unity with non-believers, it, it must be because we're doing something wrong. Ultimately, all roads lead to God, right? In fact, Jim Carrey, the comedian, said in an interview on 60 Minutes, I'm a Buddhist, I'm a Muslim, I'm a Christian, I'm whatever you want me to be. It all comes down to the same thing. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus actually is divisive. And when Jesus spoke these words to this first audience, people were still making up their minds about him. But before long, Jesus would be betrayed and he would suffer and he would die on a Roman cross. And he would rise three days later and people would have to make a decision. Like, is he the son of God as he said? Or is he a lunatic, a liar, and a fraud? Because all roads do not lead to God. We are either for Jesus Christ or we are against him. And this is the dividing line, friends, that runs right through the human race. And this is why Jesus came to bring not peace but division. To divide the people of God from those who are not the people of God. The faithful from the unfaithful, the sheep from the goats. And I think knowing this helps us to have right expectations. And sometimes we think that because we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, our lives will be easier, will be happier, will be less stressful here and now. And sometimes, rarely, but sometimes that is the case. But friends, Jesus calls us to share in his sufferings and to be prepared for hostility and adversity because we follow Jesus. And so we should be very cautious about unbiblical expectations. And sadly, sometimes 
we can have such strong convictions about unity that if there isn't unity, we think we're doing something wrong. Like if unbelievers don't like us and appreciate us and admire our faith, we must be doing something wrong. And in our day, sadly, some are so quick to jettison truths of the gospel, so quick to jettison doctrine, try to make Christianity more palatable by just beginning to strip away and peel back the things that people don't like until they find that there's nothing remaining. As J.C. Ryle wrote, peace is useless if purchased at the expense of truth. Now, this text does not give us the permission as Christians to be obnoxious. We as Christians are called to pursue reconciliation. And as far as it depends on us to be at peace with all, We're not to be divisive ourselves, but it is inevitable that with our commitment to Jesus will come divisions with those who are not of Christ, and it's Christ and the gospel of Christ that is divisive. The Apostle Paul said it's an aroma, a pleasing aroma of salvation, a fragrance to some, and it is the stench of death to others. The same gospel. And I think our hope as Christians is that as we look to the horizon of salvation, to the return of Jesus Christ, we will celebrate, won't we, the unity that will follow the judgment of Christ. In fact, one of the things that will make eternity with the Lord so sweet is the unity that we will share with every other brother and sister in Christ. Now think about it, in that day when the prince of peace returns and when Satan is bound and when the wicked are separated from the godly, we will experience perfect peace. But until that day, our expectation should be that there will be divisions. We should prepare to stand firm in the faith, prepare to not always be liked, for our commitment to the Lord to not always be valued. And depending on the part of the world you're in, depending on the part of the subculture you're in, your commitment to Christ may never be valued. We should expect Jesus' ministry to bring division, so we should prepare to count the cost. But secondly, I think we see in this text that we should expect Jesus to return and therefore we should prepare to meet the judge. Look at what Jesus says here in verse 54. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky. But why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. 
So we should expect Jesus to return and therefore prepare to meet the judge. And Jesus is is preparing his followers and he's preparing us to notice the signs of the times. Now, if you were here last week, you remember we talked about how it's futile to spend lots of time worrying about when exactly Jesus will return because we're not given those details. You might think, well, wait a minute. If we're told not to worry about when he's going to return, then why is he telling us to, to kind of pay attention to the signs of the times? Well, he's not telling us to pay attention to the signs of the times of his return. Notice in the last part of verse 56, we are called to interpret this present time. And this is what the Jews here in Jesus' day did not do. They had the Son of God standing in the flesh right in front of them, and they failed to see that the prophecies were being fulfilled, that the Messiah had arrived. And John the Baptist had already come, had paved the way for the Messiah. And Jesus' own miracles were designed to point to the fact that he was the promised rescuer. That he was God in the flesh come to save his people, and yet they failed to read the signs. And so Jesus says to them, you hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky, and you do not know how to interpret this present time. And when he says hypocrite, this is not necessarily someone who pretends to be something they're not. He's referring to the disconnect between someone who can accurately interpret the weather signs in the heavens, but can't accurately interpret the heavenly signs about Jesus. They're hypocrites, because they should look at his birth, his miracles, his teaching, and see that he is the Messiah, but they don't. Despite all the evidence, they don't see because they don't want to see. They miss the fact that the time is right now. That now is the time of repentance. Now is a time to prepare for the future. Now is the time to get right with God. But they miss it. They fail to recognize the judgment that is coming that's just on the horizon. And there's a warning in these verses for us as well, isn't there? We are warned in these verses and in the preceding verses that there is a time to come when Jesus will return and we will stand before him. There is a time coming when when the moments and the season of getting right with God will close and that moment will come unexpectedly. In fact, later in Luke chapter 17, Jesus will compare that to the days of Noah Just like in the days of Noah, people were eating and celebrating and working and going about their lives until Noah entered the ark and the door closed and the flood came and swept everyone else away. And Jesus said that the end of this life as we now know it will come like that. We can be so attuned in our own lives to the most subtle shifts and the stock market, or the economy. We can be so attuned to subtle shifts in fashion and the false styles of the year. We can be so attuned to what's popular in music or movies or Hollywood. We can even think that we are so sophisticated with our, our devices and being able to look at our apps and determine when the rain's going to come today. 
the humidity and the dew point and the pressure. We can do all of that and miss the fact that everything that currently is at any moment will come to a screeching halt. And the door of salvation will close. And we will stand before the Lord. And everyone who is not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith for salvation will be swept away. And so isn't it kind of the Lord to give us this notice ahead of time? Isn't it kind of the Lord to warn us ahead of time? To help set right expectations so that we might be prepared. And this is exactly, friends, what Jesus is doing here. This is the exact purpose of texts like this for us today. They are meant to prepare us. To prepare us, most importantly, by getting us ready to stand before the Lord, to meet him face to face. In fact, this is precisely what Jesus drives at these last verses of chapter 12, verses 57, 58, and 59. The point is this. If you were guilty and you knew that you were guilty and you were on your way to court, wouldn't you do everything you could to settle beforehand so that you wouldn't have to stand trial before the judge? Because you know, if I go before the judge, he's gonna find me guilty and I can never pay back everything I owe. So you would do everything you could ahead of time. You would recognize that this journey that I am taking is the perfect time to get things right before I stand before the judge. So here's the point of everything we have looked at this morning. We are called as the people of God to interpret the times by seeing that the right time, the time to get right with the Lord is now. Like now is a time to turn because there is a fire of judgment to come. There is a separation coming that will be eternal. And there is a day when we will stand before the judge. But at least right now, at least in this moment, that time has not come. This moment, this time is for repentance. This moment, this time is for getting right with the Lord. Like, are you ready? Are you ready to stand before the Lord? Have you turned by faith and are trusting in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sin? The Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity who was born as a baby, who lived without sin in our world, who died as a substitute for all who believe on a cross, who was raised three days later to life, who is currently seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding on behalf of all who believe, and who will one day return and establish his kingdom in fullness after he judges, who will rule and reign forever with his people, whom he calls the sheep of his pasture. Are you ready? And if you are trusting in Jesus this morning, 
This judgment to come is not something that should scare us. The payment for our sin has been paid in full. The wrath of God for sin has been fully dealt with for those who are in Christ Jesus. Which means on that day, we will stand before him and on behalf of Jesus, we will be covered. We will be fully and finally saved. We will be home. Like Jesus is the Prince of Peace for all those who are in him. He gives that peace to us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have been justified by faith. We have peace with God. Full atonement has been made. And so on that day, the judge will say, hey, their sin has been paid in full by the sacrifice of Jesus, my son. Which means we have nothing to fear about that day. And so, this is a text of scripture again. Probably we don't often spend a lot of time meditating on. I've never heard of a children's Sunday school lesson built around these verses. But in the kindness of the Lord, God has given us these words. He's given us his word in this way. That we might have right expectations for the here and now. So that we might be prepared for all eternity. Let's pray together.